Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with a phony crisis averted, with the US and global economy not tumbling over the brink, which was the alarm sounded often in the press, only to be followed by a celebration of compromise and bipartisanship, with both President Biden and Speaker McCarthy declaring victory. Joining us is James Galbraith, Professor and Chair of Government and Business Relations at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas in Austin. He was the Executive Director of the Joint Economic Committee of the United States Congress and before that an economist for the House Banking Committee. He chaired the Board of Economists for Peace and Security from 1996 to 2016 and now directs the University of Texas's Inequality Project. He is the author of a number of books, including The Predator State, How Conservatives Abandoned the Free Market, and Why Liberals Should Too. And we will discuss his article at The Nation, The Debt Deal is a Tragedy, and How the Charade is Only on Pause Since the Problem Was Not Dealt With, and Extortion and Brinkmanship Will Return in Two Years. Then we'll look into the drone attacks inside Russia and the war in Ukraine, which is largely a war of drones, in which the Ukrainians lose 10,000 drones per month, with Russian losses likely higher. Joining us is Lauren Khan, who is a research fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, where her work focuses on defense innovation and the impact of emerging technologies on international security, with a particular emphasis on artificial intelligence. We will discuss her article at the Los Angeles Times, Why Ukraine May Have Launched an Unprecedented Drone Attack on Moscow. Then finally, we will speak with Anthony Lowenstein, who is an independent journalist, best-selling author, filmmaker, and co-founder of Declassified Australia. His books include Disaster Capitalism, Making a Killing Out of a Catastrophe, and My Israel Question. He was based in East Jerusalem from 2016 to 2020, and his latest book just out is The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World, which we will discuss along with what has been called the trial of the century in Australia and the reopening of a case against Julian Assange by the FBI in spite of Australian pressure to end his prosecution. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community 
in post-truth America. And joining us now is James Galbraith, a professor and chair of government and business relations at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. He was the executive director of the Joint Economic Committee of the United States Congress, and before that, an economist for the House Banking Committee and chaired the board of the Economists for Peace and Security from 1996 to 2016, and now directs the University of Texas Inequality Project and is the author of a number of books, including The Predator State, How Conservatives Abandoned the Free Market and Why Liberals Should Too, and he has an article at The Nation, The Debt Ceiling is a Tragedy. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Galbraith. Thanks very much. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, James, and I take it you're not breaking out the champagne to celebrate that we avoided a stupid, self-inflicted, suicidal act of insanity? Uh, I think that's a maybe slightly hyperbolic characterization, but I'm in your ballpark on it. So we saw that uh, after the House vote, the Senate voted 63 to 36, and President uh, Biden addressed the nation on Friday night. Then on Saturday, he uh, signed the legislation to avoid the default. And in terms of the Senate vote, there were six Democratic senators who voted no, Ed Markey, Jeff Merkley, Elizabeth Warren, John Fetterman, and Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders wrote in The Guardian, at a time when this country is rapidly moving towards oligarchy with more wealth and income inequality than we've ever experienced, I could not in good conscience vote for a bill that cuts programs for the most vulnerable while refusing to ask billionaires to pay a penny more in taxes. Wall Street and corporate interests may be enthusiastic about this bill, but I believe it moves us in exactly the wrong direction. What's your response? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm very much agreed with what Senator Sanders was saying about the substance of the, of the bill, but I would add a couple of things. The first is that the concessions were entirely unnecessary, that the administration had but chose not to use a number of options that were both legal and constitutional that would have diffused the entire debt ceiling um, issue and have permitted them to proceed without engaging uh, in negotiations or making any concessions. Uh, They chose not to do so, and the reason they chose not to do so was that they had a politically motivated desire to appear to be to making make concessions, to appear to be entering in to a bipartisan negotiation, and that's the angle, of course, that that the president emphasized uh, in his uh, his talk uh, on Friday. Uh, gee, it's great we got a bipartisan uh, uh, agreement. Well, it's, it was a bipartisan agreement in which one side made a number of concessions. Uh, that were against its uh, programmatic, or against the programmatic interests, certainly of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, uh, and uh, uh, the other side had to give them nothing at all in order to, uh, in, in order to get those concessions. That's uh, uh, <laughs> spare me from such, from such compromises, if you if you like. Okay, that's the first point. Uh, this the the second point was that even if there had actually been uh, no agreement. Uh, no, uh, none of the measures I just mentioned that they could have taken were taken, and you'd gone over the debt ceiling. Uh, the all of the of the strength of the position would have been on the administration's side in that case. Uh, there would have been a an outcry, perhaps, 
the, the bankers might have made some phone calls. Who knows? Pitchforks might have come out. Uh, but it would have been very clear that the responsibility was on the Republican side and they would not have been able to hold that position for more than maybe a few minutes or a few hours, in my view. So, uh, again, the administration gave up a strong uh, position, came out in front, sat down uh, in, in the field of battle and, and then made important and material concessions in order to make the problem uh, go away, but at the expense of the environment at the expense of, uh, of, of, uh, of, of the, re the recipients of various anti-poverty programs, at the expense uh, of tax enforcement, uh, and uh, they set up an environment where this will now happen every two years. So they really gave away an, a lot more than they appear to have given away if you just look at the terms of this agreement. So. Is there a possibility that this is a, just a bad deal because of bad strategy? I mean, Ron Klain is no longer there. I'm not sure whether they made a big mistake by assuming uh, the White House that McCarthy couldn't get his caucus in line in order to pass a, uh, I, a, a I can't bill. judge what their internal uh, thinking was, what their strategy was. All I can say is that they took steps that they didn't need to take, and they got an outcome that was much worse. Uh, they gave away a very strong position in order to get an outcome that looks good. That, in other words, where the president could claim that he was a, he was showing his ability to negotiate a bipartisan compromise. I I would infer that that was their objective. That that's what that's what they wanted to show. They wanted to do this for public relations purposes. They got what they wanted, uh, but they got it at the expense of a good many uh, important public priorities. And your article at The Nation, James Galbraith, the debt deal is a tragedy, ends with this line. Well, the president has what he wants. The speaker has what he wants. Let them defend the consequences. So what's going to happen then uh, if Biden is reelected? Then he'll come right up against this same charade again, won't he? He will come up against the same situation, assuming that the Republicans are still in control in at least one House of Congress. Uh, they will come back and say, "You want the debt ceiling increased? You have to, uh, you have to extend your concessions. You have to renew the cap on on total spending." So the real cuts. Uh, the programmatic cuts will get deeper over time, and they'll give him another short leash extension, and it will come up again two years after that. Uh, so we're going to see this for the indefinite future as things now stand. But then can you therefore, James Galbraith, go back to 2011 when President Obama was faced with the Tea Party extortion, where, in fact, John Boehner referred to them as legislative terrorists, and yet he made the deal uh, with capping both defense and domestic spending, and then shortly thereafter, the caps on defense spending melted away, and it slowed down the recovery from the 2008 crash. Uh, that, indeed, that indeed happened, and Harry Reid, on that occasion, the Senate Democratic leader, asked the White House not to uh, engage in any further such negotiations. Uh, so this was uh, this is a uh, something which is <laughs> a show we've seen before, uh, and I, it seems fairly certain we're now going to see it again for the indefinite future. The precedent has been set. 
Uh, and uh, as we say, from, saw it's, the, the White House appears to be happy uh, with having made those concessions. They don't seem to be programmatically upset. They're telling us, telling, telling their their progressive wing of the party uh, that it could have been worse. Uh, well, that, that's true, and, and it will it will get worse over time as the as things now go forward. I think the only way forward going uh, as this comes up again is simply for an increasing constituency to refuse to play ball, uh, to say, let it go. Uh, and if we if we go over this supposed cliff, we'll discover that the that the that the nature of the claim catastrophe was was just another Washington scare story, so much hot air really. Uh, either either it will be resolved very quickly, or if it isn't resolved, it will prove to be uh, manageable. We get this regularly when very powerful interests in Washington want something to happen. That's the financial equivalent of the claim that Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction, that the, the, uh, the, uh, the smoking gun will be a mushroom cloud. Uh, this, is, this is something that's very familiar in Washington politics. So this 2017 law that is being in, invoked and used for this kind of extortion on a number of occasions, uh, we mentioned 2011 and, and now just the last, what, 90 days or so, it wouldn't be that difficult to get rid of it, would it? I mean, is there any chance of that happening? No, I don't think we can get rid of it. Uh, the, the 1917 law, as I now understand it, was enacted in order to authorize the Treasury uh, to borrow up to a certain limit, knowing that as we went into the First World War, the amount of borrowing was going to increase much more than it had been in previous in previous over the previous century. So, uh, it is a constitutionally required uh, device. Now you can rewrite the law to make it more flexible, uh, but you simply repealing it does not make the Treasury situation easier. What the Treasury could do uh, is. Uh, first of all, they have the coin option, which is in the law and permits them to bypass the debt ceiling. They could also issue perpetual bonds, which don't have a principal amount to repay, and those are not covered by the debt ceiling, and there's some other devices. So there were ways around this that would not infringe on the law or the Constitution. They simply chose not to use them. Uh, but, but as I say, beyond that, if they chose to hang tough and say, okay, you want to... Uh, uh, put the Fed in the position of bounce, of deciding whether or not to bounce checks, well, then it would go over to the Fed, and, and the Fed would decide uh, whether uh, people's banks would get a notice that the checks did not clear. Uh, and in that case, the crisis would be over very quickly because uh, nobody's going to stand for that. Nobody's going to stand for that, uh, and the Federal Reserve knows it, and everybody really knows it, uh, that this is not going to happen. And so the Congress, the, the Republicans, would, would, whoever was standing in the way of a clean extension of the debt ceiling would be forced to back down or they'd be facing a political extinction in a very short period of time. That's where the real strength of the, of the administration's position was, and they chose not to use it. They bought into this idea that somehow the world would melt down and the United States would fade away uh, if if they went up to the debt ceiling and you put the Fed in the position of deciding whether a check cleared or didn't clear. That's absurd. Well, I always wondered why they didn't make it clear from the outset. Uh, going back to what John Boehner said about the Tea Party, referred to them as legislative terrorists, 
Couldn't you have made the case from the very beginning that you don't negotiate with terrorists? No, I don't think that's the right case. I think the right case is these guys are are are, are waving uh, their paper tigers. They're waving uh, a a a fake sword, a plastic sword. They don't really have a weapon. They don't really have uh, the leverage that they're claiming they have. The world is not going to come to an end. Get rid of this apocalyptic rhetoric that was all over the press. We're avoiding catastrophe. No, we weren't. We were engaged in a major political show, and of course. Uh, your colleagues in the press love the idea that we're, you know, the showdown at the OK Corral, Holmes and Moriarty, uh, the banks of the Reichenbach Falls, one thing after another. I mean, seriously, this is this this is where the, the problem is. Uh, that, you know, the, the, the New York Times will you know, and other papers, you know, immediately start saying we avoided a catastrophe. It's nonsense. But many of the solutions that you were mentioning earlier, James, were were they temporary? Uh, I didn't get the impression that, that there was a permanent solution to it. Well, any the, the the measures I mentioned just now are continuously available. They're not limited, so far as I'm aware. Certainly, the coin option, uh, the option of minting a coin, would have to be platinum in any denomination is open to the uh, the Secretary of the Treasury under law. That was enacted in 1996. And the director of the Mint, who drafted that statute, has said that the option of doing a high-value coin was very much part of the intent of that statute, uh, which was enacted, as I say, was enacted actually on a bipartisan basis. Uh, so that option's there. They just chose not to use it. Uh, the other options, which involve either, uh, as I say, perpetual bonds or something called premium bonds, uh, are there, so far as I'm aware. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, someone might challenge them in court. I don't think those challenges would work. And of course, the courts are there to make that decision. But it would, in fact, uh, then, uh, you know, they're, they're, it would, in fact, get you through the crisis. And it's, as I say, if the, assuming the courts uphold the administration, then it's available as a, on a continuing basis. And the, the debt ceiling as such uh, would, would simply cease to be a relevant factor. Uh, but that's where that's where you would like to go ultimately, because it's 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 a it's a, it's a fifth wheel in the process. The Congress already decides and appropriates and authorizes expenditure and enacts tax laws, and the the consequence for uh, for financing mechanisms is, are are essentially incidental, given the way the monetary system works in the uh, you know, since the early part of the 20th century. So. Are you suggesting then, James Galbraith, that had it gone to the courts and to the Supreme Court, and there's no guarantees with this ultra-conservative Supreme Court, but presumably the argument before the Supreme Court would have been the 14th Amendment? I don't know that that's the case. I don't think any of the measures that I uh, suggest uh, have any, uh, you know, that require uh, that one... Uh, appeal to the to the Fourteenth Amendment. They're simply authorized under existing law. Uh, no, I, I, on the Fourteenth Amendment argument here strikes me as a uh, diver diversion. The Fourteenth Amendment is not something one invokes. 
it is part of the basic law of the United States. It's part of the Constitution as much as the as as any of the or, original provisions or the Bill of Rights or anything else is. So they, it is something that the president is sworn and the Treasury Secretary are sworn to uphold. It means that they are sworn not to challenge the validity, for example, of Social Security payments. Uh, and so it, if they if they chose to withhold those payments, that would be challengeable uh, and perhaps impeachable under the provisions of the Constitution because it would be a violation of their oath of office. But the 14th Amendment is not something that you invoke against the debt ceiling, which so far as I know is entirely consistent with the 14th Amendment. Uh, what, is, what would not be consistent uh, with it would be an attempt to repudiate the validity of the debt, uh, which is I don't think is what we're talking about here. So I think this is really an, a, an offshoot and a somewhat misleading aspect of this conversation. There were, as I said before, legal and constitutional measures that would have deflated the debt ceiling. And beyond that, uh, if it had come down to a decision by the Federal Reserve to clear checks, which they could do by extending an overdraft facility on an unsecured basis to the Treasury, uh, that's also something that's arguably legal. Uh, so, uh, and certainly consistent with the debt ceiling. So I don't think the 14th Amendment really uh, plays here in a, in a central or critical role. So just in closing then, James, do you think that Biden, even though you say uh, that this was an appeal to bipartisanship and it was a largely a political decision that he made, do you think that there will be backlash against him, particularly from uh, the students, the young people, the Democrats need them to vote, and taking the cap off student loans, the food stamp, Medicaid, etc., the cuts, are never totally clear that the people that are impacted, the very poor in this country, vote in great numbers. But I think students feel pretty strongly about the student loan issues, don't they? Well, it might well give some impetus to a primary challenge to President Biden. Uh, I think that that's a uh, that, that's a serious possibility. Sure, uh, how it would play in the general election between two advocates of the same austerity policies. Uh, essentially, I, 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 I don't know. I think it would probably discourage people who might otherwise vote uh, for the president from voting at all. Uh, so I don't think it will help him politically. Uh, it, it, but it is, of course, that's uh, his judgment and the judgment of his advisors, which is very much a, a recurring theme in the Democratic Party that it somehow helps Democratic president's candidates uh, to uh, to get cozy up to the other side. Uh, I don't think the evidence for that is very strong, uh, but that is certainly their view. Well, James Galbraith, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Nice talking to you, Ian. Well, thanks, James. And again, I've been speaking with James Galbraith, who's a professor and chair in government and business relations at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. He was executive director of the Joint Economic Committee of the United States Congress and before that an economist for the House Banking Committee. He chaired the Board of Economists for Peace and Security from 1996 to 2016 and now directs the University of Texas Inequality Project and is the author of a number of books, including The Predator State, How Conservatives Abandoned the Free Market and Why Liberals Should Too. And he has an article at The Nation, The Debt Deal is a Tragedy. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the drone attacks inside Russia and the war in Ukraine, which is largely a war of drones in which the Ukrainians lose 10,000 drones per month, with Russian losses likely higher. Sing it to me. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lauren Kahn, who's a research fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, where her work focuses on defense innovation and the impact of emerging technologies on international security, with a particular emphasis on artificial intelligence. And she has an article at the Los Angeles Times, Why Ukraine May Have Launched an Unprecedented Drone Attack on Moscow. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lauren Kahn. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, Lauren. And apparently this attack a few days ago, a drone attack or these loitering munitions, as you've pointed out in your article, struck a number of buildings. And they also targeted the sort of the Beverly Hills, if you will, of Moscow, the the more uh, affluent area. Do you have any idea of how many drones were involved? Uh, I do not. Um, the The details about the attack itself are quite murky. We know that there's been a few waves of attack, and as you mentioned, a few buildings have been damaged and a few casualties. But what systems exactly were used remains unclear. It could have been a mixture of systems, um, as as I outlined in your article, and you and, and as you mentioned, it could be a drone, something that's a little bit longer range um, that is remotely piloted. Or it could have been, you know, a couple of loitering munitions, which are more single-use capabilities um, that are meant to be fired and forgotten, essentially, but are somewhat confusing between because they do have the ability to wait and loiter in an area before engaging a target, and so therefore can be recalled. But they're much more like single-use munitions, like a missile or a rocket. Well, one of the most amazing things in your article, Lauren, is that Ukraine loses an estimate of 10,000 drones or UAVs each month. Now, is that the full sort of panoply going from the small drones that are used by small units of soldiers to the big, the bigger drones? I'm not entirely certain. I think it encompasses a broad range of those capabilities, like you mentioned, from off the shelf to military drones. It's a number that is by far no means an exact number. It's an approximation that came out of a report from the Royal um I think it's the Rusi um, over in the United Kingdom um, that put it together. Looking, they have more details on their methodology, but it, I think it encompasses and it kind of demonstrates the just sheer number of uses of these capabilities, likes of which we've not seen before. And that's enabled in part by, again, these technologies, not necessarily being inherently military technologies, but being commercial technologies that can then be combined or used with other technologies, such as additive manufacturing and 3D printing, can turn them into weapons. Um, and has also, you know, in general, for the for the increasing affordability of some of these capabilities as well. But ten thousand drones being lost per month by the Ukrainians indicates that this is a a, a whole new battlefield, is it not? Uh, your article points out that the Ukrainians have written folk ballads dedicated to their drones. They've set up dronations, uh, crowdfunding yeah. efforts, to purchase more. So the fact that they lose 10,000 a month would indicate that this is a war of drones, is it not? Absolutely. It's a massive effort, and I think it's one of the kind of really things we've seen. There have been these military technologies like the TB2 that have been used in previous conflicts like in Nagorno-Karabakh, but again, to your point, the scale is just unprecedented. This is the first real conventional land war we've seen of this scale between two more advanced um, militaries in recent memory, and especially since a lot of technologies have evolved from things like, again, autonomous technologies, drones, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is really almost a testing ground and testing bed for this new kind of warfare that you allude to. 
And in the early stages of the war, apparently the Bayraktar drones that the Ukrainians got from Turkey, Turkish um, dictator or authoritarian leader, his son-in-law owns the company that produces them, and they set up a factory in Ukraine uh, where they must produce a lot of them. Um, My understanding is, and your article points out, that they're kind of slow, loud, and lumbering. they, they've uh, a lot of them have been shot down because they don't have rotating frequencies. My understanding, and the Ukrainians have been asking for uh, you know more modern drones that have rotating frequencies that uh, so the Russians can't jam them. Yeah, absolutely. So these these drones at the beginning of the war, I think what was really I think why they attracted so much attention because they were these slower drones that are more susceptible to things like advanced electronic warfare that Russia was thought to have. At the time, Russia was unable to kind of use those capabilities to their maximum potential, which allowed for the TV-2s to be really effective at what they're really, really good at. And Ukraine recognized this, which is taking out slow stationary targets or, again, using them as distractions. And so when Russia then, you know, adapted and accommodated and emphasized and reinforced their electronic warfare capabilities, Ukraine kind of recognized that and was able to, I think what was really a testament to the Ukrainians' adaptability in particular, deep understanding of what it means to be a military innovation. Military innovations and technologies are not constituting of innovations in and of themselves. It's how you use them and how you employ them. And so I think it's a really testament to Ukraine being able to recognize, you know, that they're not as effective at this stage in the game, and so have been willing to relegate them to more traditional reconnaissance roles, you know, because they are more susceptible to these uses, and instead using other munitions, like potential loitering munitions that we're seeing, or other types of maybe domestically produced drones um, that are less susceptible to these um, counter drone uh, uh, capabilities that we've seen in the past. So I really would just like to highlight that, that that is really, really what I take as an impressive lesson learned from this. So what do you know about the Ukrainian-produced drone, the UJ-22? Um, I don't know much of the exact details. By no means am I a technologist. However, I do know that it's a, one, a longer-range capability. Um, it's, it's a more recent capability, and that same company also produces the potential loitering munitions that some have speculated were used in this attack. And the loitering munition in the UJ-31 Sliva, they're they're different in as much as they're kamikaze or suicide drones. They just have uh, one use capability yeah. because they have a warhead and they just fly them into the target. My understanding is that that they were used in that recent attack on the Kremlin, uh, which may have been sources close to Ukrainian military intelligence who have told me that they may well have been launched just outside of Moscow, but. They were aimed at Putin's residence inside the Kremlin, and apparently uh, the one that's seen on television that the Russian media were allowed to see, it hit a flagpole. So had it it not hit a flagpole, it might have hit the target. So that must have really rattled Putin. Is that your understanding? Um, I guess so. I'm, I'm not as familiar with that exact um, with that exact scenario, but I, in terms of those capabilities, it doesn't seem far off. Those loitering munitions are usually not always entirely can be man portable systems so they are traditionally launched from closer to the target um and compared to say traditional munitions like sometimes rockets not necessarily all of this is a wide gambit of technologies 
But they have what's unique, again, is that ability to loiter. So they can wait for, you know, an optimal moment before they engage a target. And so as a result, can be recalled. They're not perfect by any means. They're a relatively newer technology. They've been around for a couple of years and have also been used in previous conflicts, such as Nagorno-Karabakh and pretty early on loading munitions, the U.S., um, created switchblade munitions were provided in early age packages to Ukraine. So Ukraine is also quite familiar with using these systems, so it's not surprising that they would be used in these sorts of attacks. And the U.S. produces a, a switchblade, is that what uh, you just said? Yes. And that's a, that's a man-portable thing, right? Uh, I have to double-check. Mm-hmm. But one of the tactics of using drones, has, particularly against Russian warships has been to swarm the target with drones to distract and then something else sinks the boat. Has that been used? Um, that has been used in the past. I'll say in general, what's a really good benefit of one cheaper drones um, and loitering munitions like the one that you mentioned and also what was used by Russia previously, the Shahed munition, loitering munitions, is that they're really, really cheap systems, right? They're one and done. So they're really effective at swarming munitions. And the cost comparatively to shoot them down, even if they are easy targets, is much more is much higher than that of actually launching them. And so even if you have these capabilities that aren't necessarily the most precise or the most effective, and using them in mass quantities can be effective. And again, that's to the testament of being able to recognize the competitive advantage of these technologies and acknowledge their weaknesses and where they can actually be turned into strengths. And you call them one and done? I would say so, yes. <laughs> Again, right. caveated because you can recall them, but that's traditionally how they're used. Right. Who's at the cutting edge here? Since the Ukrainians are adapting and they're using, and using them and they're losing 10,000 of them a month, mm -hmm. which is just extraordinary. Are they at the cutting edge now, along with the Russians, or does the U.S. still have an edge? I would say right now in terms of practice, um, the Ukraine is on the cutting edge, right? They're the ones employing these technologies in new capacities. In my work in artificial intelligence in particular, I, I look at the intersection and the ability of the U.S. military uh, to acquire and adopt these capabilities, artificial intelligence, enabled systems, et cetera. And I have found that the United States, you know, invests quite a lot in these systems, but has has barriers to entry and has by certain amounts of Luddism when it comes to actually integrating and turning these wonderful research projects into programs of record. And so Ukraine, I think, was a wake-up call for a lot of states, including the United States and China, for example, that have these grand strategies announced that they intend to use, you know, cybersecurity, advanced cyber, combined with quantum, combined with artificial intelligence, combined with traditional kinetic forces on the ground to launch, you know, potential assaults on Taiwan, amphibious assaults on Taiwan, for example. But those things are really hard to do. And so I think everyone is learning and, and watching Ukraine in particular about how they actually employ and are able to adapt and to use these, um, use these systems on the fly. So since you work on artificial intelligence, how is it being applied in the military context? We know in the civilian context there's some alarming possibilities, particularly, uh, for example, in our already fairly contentious and polarized politics. You know, you can mm -hmm. literally create a commercial for a politician that puts all the opposite words in, in the person's mouth than they would want. So you, the potential there is, is quite hideous. 
what's the military application? I mean, I know it's a broad question, but what is the military application for AI? Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, it's a broad question, but it's a great question, million-dollar question. So the thing about artificial intelligence in general, I think that is tricky to grasp relative to other technologies, is that it's a general-purpose technology, one that is also not necessarily, it's not even a dual-use capability, right? It's not necessarily civilian and military. It spans the gamut. It's much more like, say, the electricity and the internet and the combustion engine rather than a specific missile system. And so because of that, there are unique challenges that are, I think, alleviated a bit in defining the context in which they're used. So for military applications, you can have technologies, you can have chat GPT, your technologies that aren't necessarily military technologies, be used in military contexts. And so we see that a lot actually happening in Ukraine. I would say um, we're seeing natural language um, processing technologies being used to translate and to tag, um, you know, radio transmissions in real time so that you can categorize them and go through them much more quickly. There's Clearview AI's facial recognition technology being used to identify Russian combatants and killed civilians um, and casualties on the ground. Palantir is making a really fantastic sort of glass battlefield, as they call it, that combines a lot of sensor information from systems on the ground, from forces, from satellite imagery that it gets live from Starlink satellites and things like that in order to provide warfighters on the ground with all of the information using advanced AI algorithms capabilities. So really, it's it's across the board, and it's not necessarily on the weapon systems themselves, but in all of the logistics and planning. More broadly, AI is being really used, and I think, and helpful in all of the, I like to call it the boring stuff. So data management and metrics. The United States, I would say, is pretty advanced and has prioritized something called predictive maintenance, where it uses AI to assess its capabilities to assess its aircraft and armored vehicles, et cetera, to see when they might need maintenance before they even break down and to analyze supply chains and things like that. So it's really, again, a broad range of things that aren't even necessarily in the weapons themselves or the weapon systems necessarily. So you mentioned Starlink, which is a company owned by Elon Musk, and then and also Palantir, which is a company owned uh, by Peter Thiel. Obviously, uh, Palantir, I think, is a, a company run by the CIA, and, and I imagine they're pretty autonomous. So that that's the biggest edge that one of the biggest edges that the Ukrainians have, isn't it, that the U.S. is helping them with the very technology that, you, that uses AI that you just described, where you, the whole battlefield is mapped out for you, and all the way down from command level down to the field level. Absolutely. And with that as well, I think that's also a new feature of this conflict is that you see the increasing um, activity of both individual citizens and participation. You know, like I mentioned with the crowdfunding of drones, that active participation is really enabled by some of these technologies on a wider scale, as well as the involvement of private sector actors, as you mentioned, you know, with Starlink and Palantir being involved in this as well. Um, I think that's going to pose challenges in the long term about managing that risk. But again, it's brought about these technologies not being inherently military technologies and not even being produced mainly by the government or militaries, but being really commercially driven commercial sector technology that is then flowing into military systems. So just in closing then, Lauren Kant, how much do you think this drone technology and AI technology will give the Ukrainians an advantage in this counteroffensive that's supposedly just starting? 
Absolutely. So I always like to caveat, despite me being, you know, someone who works on these technologies all day and talks about their importance, no single technology is a silver bullet. It's not a game changer. I'm encouraged and I think that Ukraine has demonstrated their ability to use these technologies in really effective ways. Um, as we're seeing. So I definitely think that they are helping. I mean, it's hard, you know, in the middle of it to analyze and attribute which successes are, you know, because of what um, inputs. Um, However, I definitely think it cannot hurt. And I definitely think that we will continue to see those numbers of UAVs and drones and loitering munitions increase. And I think that we will continue to see new technologies emerging and being used on the battlefield as well. Well, Lauren Khan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Lauren Kahn, who is a research fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, where her work focuses on defense innovation and the impact of emerging technologies on international security, with a particular emphasis on artificial intelligence. And she has an article at the Los Angeles Times, Why Ukraine May Have Launched an Unprecedented Drone Attack on Moscow. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing the exporting of the technology of repression and Australia's trial of the century. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Sydney, Australia, is Anthony Lowenstein, who's an independent journalist, best-selling author, filmmaker, and co-founder of Declassified Australia. His books include Disaster Capitalism, Making a Killing Out of Catastrophe, and My Israel Question. He was based in East Jerusalem from 2016 to 2020. And his latest book just out is The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anthony Lowenstein. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Anthony. And let's begin. I obviously want to talk to you about your new book, but tell me about Declassified Australia. So about a year and a half ago, a friend and I, Peter Cronow, who used to be with a program called Four Corners, which Americans won't know, but it's kind of Australia's, I guess, leading current affairs program. It's every week. And he was there for about 20 years and he left for a variety of different reasons, just decided to move on. And he and I had often expressed, I guess, displeasure, frustration about the lack of critical journalism around national security in much of the Australian media. I'm talking about commercial media or ABC. Obviously, there are exceptions. There are good journalists doing good work. So we were inspired by Declassified UK, which launched about four years ago, and its mission was quite similar to ours, but, of course, their focus was Britain. So essentially looking critically at Britain's role with the world, its relations with democracies, dictatorships, the arms industry, intelligence, that kind of thing. So we founded Declassified Australia. We've been going for about a year and a half. We have published, I don't know now, about 40 pieces, some of them written by Peter and I. So the range of stuff is anything from the extent of Australia and New Zealand spying in the Asia-Pacific area, uh, lots of work about intelligence, lots of work about Australia's relationships with China, US, a lot about AUKUS, the nuclear submarine deal that's been 
I guess, cemented by Anthony Albanese, the current Australian Prime Minister. So it really is looking critically at Australia's relations with the world because we feel, Peter and I, that too much of the Australian media, and this is frankly similar in the US or the UK, are far too close to the intelligence services, to the military, to the defence sector. And that's not healthy for a democracy. There needs to be much more critical reporting. So that's kind of been our mission. Well, there has been a big story, which both the New York Times and BBC and The Guardian are reporting as the trial of the century in Australia, which involves actually a brother of mine, Chris Masters. (laughs) So tell us about what's happening in Australia in that regard. Well, it's been a really amazing case. For those who don't know, the very quick summary is um, Ben Robert Smith was an Australian soldier. He was in the um, he was a special forces soldier in uh, Afghanistan. He came back to Australia roughly 10 years ago and was celebrated as a hero. He was Australia's most decorated living hero. He was given the so-called Victoria Cross, which is regarded as kind of the pinnacle of bravery. He'd apparently saved Australian lives. And he was celebrated pretty much across the board, politically, militarily. He was a hero. And fast forward to about five years ago and two journalists, Chris Masters, your brother, and Nick McKenzie, who's a journalist with the Melbourne Age, which is a major newspaper here, along with the Sydney Morning Herald, another major paper, essentially started reporting stories uh, that questioned the myth around Ben Robert Smith. Was he a war criminal? Had he killed Afghan civilians? Was he the kind of hero that he'd been portrayed as? Um, Ben Robert Smith was outraged. He decided to sue these newspapers. And it's important to note that a key funder of his action was Kerry Stokes. Now, most Americans won't know who that is, but he's a leading media proprietor, kind of like a, a Rupert Murdoch of sorts, not as big, but... a a prominent media proprietor. So there's this weird situation where a media proprietor was backing a so-called war hero against one of Australia's leading media organisations. And just last week, after years and years of court case, the judge had taken roughly a year to deliver his decision. Ben Robert Smith lost in catastrophic fashion for him. He was found to be a war criminal, in all probability had killed Afghan civilians, and it was a real victory for, not just victory for journalism, obviously for Chris Masters and Nick McKenzie and the newspapers that had backed uh, the reporting, and and let's be honest, were able to fund it. I mean, as an independent journalist, I look at this case and think, unless you have a serious backer behind you, if a prominent person like Ben Robert Smith, and I guess Americans would think of a equivalent famous soldier or special forces officer was coming after you, unless you have deep pockets, you'd probably either settle or find some way to resolve it. Right, but let me me just interject if I can, Anthony, because my brother would have lost all of his worldly possessions. The Sydney Morning Herald paid the legal bills, but the defamation case, if he had lost it, would have resulted in him losing his worldly possessions because of the antiquated Australian libel laws that protect the guilty. And by the way, along with Kerry Stokes, the Rupert Murdoch press, which what is two-thirds of Australia's press, weighed in heavily against my brother and Nick. uh, Absolutely. Yeah, no, all that's very true. And 
I don't, just to be clear, don't for a second um, minimise the potential massive risk financially, I guess, and psychologically, really, on this kind of case. But I think one of the things that is so important about this case, and as you say, it's got global attention, really, is two things, apart from obviously the victory for truth and honesty in journalism, which has taken a bit of a beating in the last couple of decades, is that the the vital importance of critically reporting on our wars, our wars meaning Iraq, Afghanistan and elsewhere. And I would say, and obviously I can't speak for your brother and Nick McKenzie, but I would say that so much of the journalism in the last two decades since 9-11 on Iraq and Afghanistan have not passed that test, mainly meaning that too much of it has been cheerleading. Obviously not all of it, of course not all of it, but that's a problem. And too many journalists have remained, in my view, far too close to the military, resulting in not just an embedded um, reality, which often means, you know, journalist X embedding with soldiers in Iraq or Afghanistan or elsewhere. It's a mindset. You're psychologically embedded with the soldiers, you are almost supporting their point of view. So this particular case not just challenges the myths around what Australia was doing in Afghanistan, with obviously the US as the major partner there. And of course, let's face it, there are huge numbers of allegations of war crimes, not just against Ben Robert Smith, who may face a criminal prosecution now. It's not entirely clear. I hope he does. But US British and Australian soldiers are accused of huge numbers of war crimes against Afghan civilians. So this case, in some ways, apart from the win for journalism, is also or it also it became a quasi war crimes trial. It was a defamation trial, but in some ways, in many ways, it became a, a war crime, an unofficial war crimes trial. Well, the other war crimes trial, which hasn't happened, is the um, information that Julian Assange and WikiLeaks originally delivered about the Iraq war. And of course, yeah. subsequent to that, he's now ch being charged with espionage. And there was a story in the City Morning Herald and in the Intercept over here that the FBI have reopened a case against Julian Assange yeah. in spite of Australian pressure to end his prosecution. Look, the Julian Assange case is, to me, one of the most unbelievably frustrating, hypocritical, outrageous stories of our time. And I say that because I've been a supporter of WikiLeaks since 2006, which is when WikiLeaks started by Julian. He was then living in Melbourne in Australia. And I don't know Julian very well. I've met him a few times over the years, including when he was in the Ecuadorian embassy. We're not best friends by any means, but I've been a big supporter of his work for years. It doesn't mean I'm uncritical of certain things he's said and done over the years, but to me, there is no more significant media outlet in my era. I'm late 40s. There is no media outlet that has released more consequential information about the state of the world than WikiLeaks in the last 20 years. There's nothing that even comes close. So now we have a situation where an Australian citizen is locked up, has been for now four years in Belmarsh, the most, um, the most tightly controlled prison in London, in the UK, the US wants to extradite him to America to face espionage charges. To be clear, he's not an American citizen. He's an Australian citizen. The Australian government for years has pretty much let him out to dry. The current Australian government says it's doing its best to get him out, which frankly, many of us are pretty skeptical about. 
And as you say, the FBI now has apparently reopened an investigation. I mean, this, I think, goes to the heart. And it really, in some ways, ties into the case around Ben Robert Smith. They're totally different cases, of course, but actually what they're actually quite similar. What I mean by that is that the price of accurate journalism can be either a years-long defamation case, which could have gone either way, or a situation where Julian Assange has essentially angered the most powerful country in the world, the US, and they want to make an example of him, and they're killing him by process, as his family says. And the idea that there is not regular, daily outrage by a lot of the media, there is in some circles, but not nearly enough in my view, I think is revealing about how many journalists I think still regard Assange with either suspicion or I I would argue jealousy. So let's turn to your book, because I obviously wanted to talk to you about it. The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World, which reveals, we learned earlier about the NSO and the Pegasus software, mm. which hacked into Jeff Bezos and Jamal Shoji's phones. But your book reveals how their cooperation with this new technology of repression that Israel's developed because of its occupation of Palestine has gone to the Myanmar army and to places like Guatemala, and I imagine with MBS, right, Saudi Arabia, the the Gulf. Absolutely. It's 130 countries, is that right? At least, at least. So essentially what the book investigates, and I was living in East Jerusalem in Palestine between 2016 and 2020, and I've been visiting there for about 20 years, uh, Palestine and Israel, that is, and the Middle East, is that Israel's occupation is now 56 years old. It's the, essentially... Um, one of the longest occupations in modern times. And during that period, Israel has developed a range of tools and technologies to maintain that occupation. So in the modern era, I'm talking about intelligence gathering, facial recognition, biometric tools, um, so-called smart walls, drones, spyware. And so the Palestinians are essentially a, a captive occupied population. And many other countries around the world are looking to Israel with admiration and they want those tools and technologies. So in the last, I talk about in the last 70 years, but it's particularly expanded in the last 50 odd years since 1967 and the Six Day War where Israel took control of the West Bank, Gaza and East Jerusalem and the Golan Heights is a unbelievable desire not just for tools and technologies that israel has created because various other nations want to control their own populations their own minorities their own journalists or dissidents or human rights workers it's also the idea of learning from israel's so-called counterinsurgency tools so you have unbelievable numbers of examples and the book goes through all this from, for example, the so-called dirty wars in the 70s and 80s, where the most brutal regimes on the planet, Guatemala, Honduras, Colombia, some of which were actually committing genocide against their own populations, were actively wanting and getting Israeli government and military support, getting weapons. In the modern era, this is a lot to do with, say, spyware. Israel has probably the top uh, one, two or three Spyware, spyware being, as you said, Pegasus, essentially being able to hack your iPhone or Android and getting all the information. So regardless of what um, encrypted apps you might use, WhatsApp or Signal, they're all totally irrelevant if your phone is 
captured. And you have huge numbers of countries that are desperate for this technology. Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bangladesh. I mean, the list goes on. And it's not just dictatorships, it's democracies as well. And the way I frame it in the book is twofold. One, this idea that I think somehow Israel uses this as an insurance policy. Israel knows that many countries around the world don't like what it's doing in Palestine. Endless occupation, daily brutality, committing apartheid in Palestine. But and yet if they sell all these tools and technologies, the belief is, with some justification, that many of those nations won't be as critical. We'll maybe release the occasional press release that's critical of the occupation or the settlements, but are so desperate for these tools that they'll kind of get in line. And that's pretty much worked out so far. The other side of it is what Israel is trying to do is to show, and this is not so much a financial export, but an ideological one, this belief that the way to organize your society is an ethno-nationalist state. Israel is the leading ethno-nationalist state in the world, namely a nation that um, benefits Jews over everyone else. And I say this as someone Jewish, by the way. So the, the country that's the most obvious almost comparison is India. India is now the biggest country in the world, the world's biggest self-described democracy. Now, India in the last 10 years, since Modi has become prime minister, has become very close to Israel. And India is also an ethno-nationalist state that wants to create a Hindu fundamentalist entity, discriminates against Muslims. Now, what India is doing is not because of Israel. India is doing what it wants to do for its own reasons, but it's inspired by Israel. In fact, Indian officials openly talk about what India, what Israel is doing in the West Bank. They want to do similarly in Kashmir, namely bringing huge numbers of Hindus to dilute the Muslim population in the north of India. Now, I mention all this because... A lot of other countries also sell arms and weapons. The US, of course, is the leading arms dealer in the world. France, other nations sell weapons. Of course they do. But Israel is now the 10th biggest arms dealer in the world. And Israel is a tiny country. The population is minuscule compared to the others. But it has an occupied population in its backyard. And when it sells these tools and technologies, it often says they're battle-tested in Palestine. So they're tested essentially on Palestinians drones or spyware, whatever it may be. And that to me is disturbing. And I say that as someone who said he's Jewish. I mean, I'm secular, I'm not religious, but I find what Israel has become and the legacy of Judaism in the 21st century as profoundly, not just embarrassing, but shameful. And we're just learning now that from documents from 2017 obtained by Haaretz that there's another company, not NSO, but this company is called NFV Systems, which boasts that their technology will enable a customer to pinpoint a person's geographic location in real time by tracking their mobile phone SIM card using cellular networks, as well as the ability to issue an alert when a target person enters or leaves a country or region designated in advance. So the beat goes on, right? The, the, the beat definitely goes on. And I think one of the, not mistakes, but one of the maybe oversights of a lot of the media coverage in the last years, and papers like The Guardian, Washington Post, have done some good work on Pegasus, to be sure. But they've kind of almost missed the bigger picture here, which is, A, there's huge numbers of alternatives to Pegasus. Pegasus is the most infamous, but there are many other Israeli spyware firms that do similar work, much less fanfare. But secondly, it's often framed mistakenly. NSO Group is not a rogue Israeli company. It's an arm of the state. 
What I mean by that is, yes, it's a private company. It has a board and has staff and et cetera. Sure, it makes profits or not. So, yes, it's a company in that way. But actually, as I show in the book, in the last 10 years, when Netanyahu, the prime minister, or the Mossad, the Israeli intelligence, have gone to various countries, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Rwanda, various repressive states, they hold out Pegasus as a diplomatic carrot. In other words, they say, we'd like to be friends with you. You want to be friends with us, and you can be. And if you do, we will give you this unbelievably powerful spyware to go after your own critics. And you can see very clearly that on the timeline, very shortly after Netanyahu or the Mossad have visited these various countries, spyware is being used. That's research done by me, but also Haaretz, the great Israeli newspaper in the last few years. So to me, these companies, many of them, if not most of these Israeli cyber security, so to speak, companies or cyber spyware companies, hacking tools, are only private in name only. They're basically an arm of the state. And that's not that dissimilar to the US. Lockheed Martin is a private company, sort of, but actually it's routinely used by the US to forward its foreign policy agenda in the Middle East, in Yemen, wherever it may be. Ukraine. I mean, just finally on this point, I mean, the so-called battle-tested weapons issue is not unique to Palestine. The US did this in Iraq and Afghanistan. They tested huge amounts of weapons, many of which ended up in the hands of other countries or back on the streets of the US because many US police departments ended up buying excess US military hardware. And in fact, the current war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you have lots of Western arms companies and, and tech companies testing weapons in that battlefield. This is how it works. Right. Um, so, yeah. Well, we're pretty much out of time, uh, but we're really appreciative of your time here today. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Anthony Lowenstein, who's in Sydney, Australia. He's an independent journalist, best-selling author, filmmaker, and co-founder of Declassified Australia. His books include Disaster Capitalism, Making a Killing Out of Catastrophe, and My Israel Question. He was based in East Jerusalem from 2016 to 2020. And his latest book just out is The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past